1: and I've been under a heated blanket for days. It's cold. All across the US, there's been snow and ice and freezing temperatures. In fact, last weekend, 80% of America's population was under some sort of winter weather advisory. It may seem hard to believe when it's negative degrees outside, but these cold temperatures and shorter winters are very likely the result of our warming planet. And when you think about the impacts on glaciers and crops and even what extreme weather can do to the body, it's hard not to panic. There's understandably a lot of doom and gloom when it comes to the state of our planet. There's this sense of existential dread and the feeling that we've gone too far, that there's no stopping the inevitable demise of Earth and everything that lives on it. It's dark, but maybe it doesn't have to be. I'm Hannah
2: Ritchie. I'm deputy editor at Our World Data, and I'm a senior researcher at the University
1: of Oxford. Hannah's also the author of a new book aptly named Not the End of the World, how we can be the first generation to build a sustainable planet. I have to admit the premise got me. I wanted to hear a data-driven and optimistic take on our climate future. So I invited Hannah onto the show. Like many of us, Hannah grew up aware and even anxious about climate change. And I spoke with her about it a couple weeks ago. I think I'm kind of from a generation
2: where it's kind of always been with me. Even as a kid, I think I maybe wasn't aware of climate change in, in any sense of where I am today. But I think as a kid, I was kind of aware of environmental problems. I think climate change came on my radar quite early. I was definitely under the age of 10 when I kind of heard about climate change. And I remember really distinctly when I was like maybe 12 or 13, we had to give like an oral presentation to the class For English. And you could pick any topic you wanted. And most people were picking like a hobby or like a favourite place. And I stood up really seriously, like trying to educate these 12 year olds on climate change. And I remember like standing with this series of charts of like map of the world showing this is what the world looks like at two degrees and three degrees and four degrees and five degrees. You could just see the coastline just getting swamped and swamped and swamped. So I, I remember even pretty early on being quite anxious and worried about climate change.
1: What drew you to data science and environmental data science in particular?
2: I think that was like much later on. Like I did environmental sciences at university. And then I, I don't think I saw it through necessarily through a data lens. I think it was more towards when I was like in the PhD stage when I kind of got interested in what big data could show us about the world. And in particular, a big inspiration for me was was a guy called Hans Rosling. And he would do these amazing TED Talks where he'd show how the world was changing through data. And that massively shifted my perspective, but also got me really interested in how you can use data to understand the world.
1: So the title of your book is Not the End of the World. And, you know, in a little bit, we'll get into why we shouldn't be panicking. But first, I want to lay out some of the reasons that there are people freaking out right now. So 2023 was the hottest year in recorded history. Remind us of the impact that that kind of warming can have on the planet in the long term there are a range of
2: potential impacts we could see. You know, Some of the big ones are just direct heat stress, like just the number and intensity of heat waves across the world will just continue to increase as the world is warming. I think a big f- focus for me is the impact on, on food production and agriculture, where if you have droughts or you have floods, or even crops can become really stressed by higher temperatures, so you get a decline in yields. So I think food security and instability is a really big one. And there are a range of other impacts, whether it's sea level rise, the intensity of storms. So I'm just listing really, really bad things that that just come hand in hand with a warming climate.
1: We know a lot about the doom and gloom surrounding the way we talk about the environment and just kind of the reality of the world we're living in. But you argue that the data tells us an optimistic story. What are the positive trends that you've documented? I always caveat that as being
2: like a cautiously optimistic <laughs> um, reality because like in no way am I necessarily really really optimistic that you know things will be fine because they, they won't be fine. What I'm trying to push back on a bit is I think with climate change and most environmental problems we kind of see it as an all or nothing. So there's some that say it's not a problem at all or they try to delay action and then way on the other end of the spectrum there's the kind of human extinction lens where there's just nothing we can do and we're doomed and I think there's a massive gray area in the middle, where impacts can be really large. But to some extent, we have control over that. Like, we are driving climate change, and there is stuff we can do about it. We just need to accelerate action.
1: I want to get into the specifics of things getting better. In the book, you talk about something called the environmental Kuznets curve. Can you explain what that is and the role that it plays here? A really good
2: example there is air pollution. That's probably the strongest environmental Kuznets curve. Now, what a Kuznets curve is, is like just imagine an upside down U. On your x axis, you have like from poor to rich. And then on the y-axis, so the height, is basically the level of air pollution. Now, what you tend to have is that when you're poor, like you're not burning a lot of fuel, you don't really have industries or infrastructure, so your air pollution is fairly low. Now, as a country gets richer and starts to industrialise, you start building industry, you have manufacturing, you have coal, you have oil, air pollution tends to rise. And then it reaches this kind of top, kind of peak point where... The focus is not necessarily on getting enough energy anymore because often your energy demand is is supplied. So you've got the energy that you need. And then your priority starts to focus to actually we just don't want dirty air anymore. Like when you're on that growth curve and your focus is on getting people out of energy poverty, like air pollution is kind of a back issue. But you reach a point where you're just not happy with having polluted air. So you put pressure on governments to reduce it, you put pressure on regulation to reduce it. And then you start to see the air pollution falls. So the actually the most polluted tends to be kind of middle income countries and then and then rich countries have actually done a really good job in reducing air pollution.
1: You give this really great example of using the Chinese Olympics. Could you sort of illustrate that for us? I think when you think of air pollution, you often
2: like think of like Beijing for example, in China, which has had really polluted air for a long time and that's come through industrialization. Now, there was the 2008 Olympics in Beijing and obviously the world was watching and everyone's athletes were coming into Beijing for the Olympics. So the Chinese government tried to do like a very quick, we need to quickly clean up the air because we've got lots of visitors and there's lots of eyes on us. And they did that as a kind of temporary measure. And to some extent it was reasonably effective, like air pollution did fall. But the problem was that, like, once everyone went home, they just took away the regulations and changes that reduced air pollution. So air pollution went back up again. Mm. People in China were kind of left with a uh, why were you willing to clean up the air for? people coming to visit. But for regular citizens, we're just happy that we have polluted air. And that actually kick-started basically the public in Beijing saying, we just won't accept this anymore. Like We want clean air. Like You've clearly showed that it's possible to reduce air pollution, so we're going to push for it now. And actually, China has been really successful over the last decade or so in reducing its air pollution. And this was really triggered by the public saying, this is unacceptable. You need to fix this.
1: We talk a lot about sustainability, and I think we often think of sustainability as something we have to make our way back to, like this golden era where, you know, the temperatures weren't rising. And you argue in your book that humanity has actually never been sustainable. How do you define sustainability?
2: Yeah, and I think there's multiple definitions that people can use. And I think as an environmentalist, I would often go with a definition of sustainability as just having a low environmental impact. So we protect future generations and, and other species on the planet. And I think that's very valid. But I think there's another half to this, which is that we also just want to provide a really good standard of living for people alive today, we want to reduce human suffering. And if you look at for most of our history, often kind of living standards were poor. So like, as an example, rates of child mortality were very high. So for a long time in history, the odds of surviving childhood was like a cost. So around half of children died. Now, what's happened over the last few centuries is that we've kind of tipped the scales the other way. So our ancestors might have had really low environmental impacts, but often they had quite poor health and living outcomes. But over the last few centuries, we've seen amazing progress on human dimensions. So poverty, extreme poverty's extreme poverty has fallen, child mortality has fallen, life expectancy has increased, all of these amazing signs of progress. But it's came at the cost of the environment, right? We've burned fossil fuels. We have rising temperatures and rising deforestation, a whole host of really bad environmental outcomes. So I think the key, and what I I frame it as is like an opportunity, is that I think we are at the stage where we can achieve both of these things at the same time. Like, I think we can reduce human suffering, we can continue human progress, and I don't think it has to come at the cost of the environment anymore. I think we have technologies, we have alternative ways of doing things that we can reduce our environmental impact at the same time.
1: What are some of the barriers that we're seeing to this definition of sustainability that you're talking about that we have in this day and age. Like, I think, I mean, modern medicine has done a lot for life expectancy and, you know, childhood mortality and maternal mortality. But what are the barriers we're seeing to that other half of sustainability creating, you know, this planet for future generations? What are what are some of those? I think in the past, a lot of those barriers have been that we just didn't have
2: alternatives. So a big driver of this progress has been energy, right? We use energy for for all of this amazing stuff. And our alternatives in the past were like either wood. So we're initially just using wood for fuel. And many people today still use wood because they don't have alternatives. And then we moved to fossil fuels. And actually, in some sense, fossil fuels have driven a lot of this development, but now they have we know that they have side effects. We have air pollution and we have climate problems. So we need to move away from fossil fuels. The barrier in the past has been that we didn't have alternatives to this. I mean, we're now at the stage where we do have alternatives. We have solar, we have wind, we have nuclear, we've got batteries, we've got electric vehicles. Now, what's really important is that in the past, these technologies were really expensive, right? And it was really, really hard to convince anyone to give up fossil fuels for this really, really expensive energy source. Now, we've seen over the last 10 years or so, we've seen the prices of of these technologies plummet. And now they're often undercutting the price of fossil fuels. So people wanting energy now can get cheap energy without using fossil fuels. And I think that's been a big barrier that's been in the way that I think we've we've taken away. Now, there are still lots of hurdles. I'm, I'm not saying this is going to be easy. We're going through. to have to go through a massive transformation, and that will require building new grids. That will mean building out energy infrastructure. That will mean switching gas stations for electric cars, charging stations, upgrading public transport. So the changes are going to be really big, but I think there's often... way of framing it, that it's actually more of an opportunity than it is a sacrifice. I think we often frame, you know, environmentalism as a sacrifice, like it's all about less, 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 when actually there are ways of doing things better that enhance our lives, but also address these problems at the same time.
1: What do you think it's going to take to sort of make that shift? Because that feels like sometimes it feels very simple, like, okay, we have this technology at hand. We just need to implement these changes. But it feels like implementing them, there's just such a high barrier because it's going to be change. It's going to be upfront costs. Like, what does it take to sort of spur that action? So arguably one of our biggest
2: challenges, if not the biggest challenge we'll face this century is, is doing all of this stuff. I think some of it will will roll on its own. I think some of the technologies are there where you just cannot stop them now. Like I think solar energy, for example, is just so cheap and so good that it will just get built. I think there, some of the barriers are like often like politically related. So like getting planning permission to actually build the wind farm or to put the solar panels on. Or we've even got an issue in most countries across the world of just getting the stuff on the grid and getting a grid connection which seems like a really core infrastructural problem and quite a boring problem but it's like so essential there's often lots of renewables waiting to go on the grid but we actually just need a grid connection there will be bigger challenges especially in lower income countries because of the upfront cost of this so often you'll say like solar or wind are cheaper per unit of energy. And that's true. But the problem is that for solar and wind, like all of the cost comes up front. It all comes at the start. So you you pay to build the solar panel or the, the wind turbines. But once you've built it, it's basically free, right? The running costs of have- Of solar and wind are really low because the sun's shining and the wind's blowing on its own. Now for fossil fuels, it's basically the opposite, where you have like some upfront cost, but most of the cost comes like spread across a much longer period of time because it's buying the coal or buying the gas. So a big hurdle will just be the the upfront cost of these technologies, which is why we need much more finance. I think that's really key, especially for richer countries to support poorer countries, is we just need a lot a much bigger drive and investment.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. Up next, the relationship between science and solutions. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy.
0: you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their
1: cause. In preparing for this interview... You know, I was reading a conversation you recently had with the New York Times, and you said something that I found really interesting. You said, I think in general, the role of science is not to dictate policy. Science identifies the problems. It can identify potential impacts. It doesn't dictate solutions. And I'm wondering what you make of what policymakers do do with the science because it sounds like you sort of think of of your role as I'm presenting the information and people can do with that information what they want. And it seems like, you know, it seems very obvious the things that people could and should be doing with the information, but I'm wondering what you think of that action or in a lot of cases inaction.
2: I think it's quite hard often to separate kind of professional role from personal role. Like of course there's like I get frustrated with Action that isn't happening, I think, should be happening, or I get frustrated with decisions that I think were the wrong ones. But I think, in a professional sense, like I, I still stick by that statement. That I think the role of science is to show what the problems are and the scale of the problems, and hopefully that drives the urgency to act. But also talking about solutions and what the solutions are and what that would mean and then I think there's like has to be a bridge of other people doing the work of bringing that into policy I think you get into quite a dangerous zone where if scientists are constantly dictating different policy decisions I think it can come out of sync with other priorities on the political lens the the key point of policymakers is that they have a a bunch of problems they have to balance, right? And if I'm a just a, a big advocate for climate action, I might just say, let's just put all of our money into to solving climate change, because that's the thing I'm really passionate about and I think is the biggest thing. But we also live in democracies and there's other problems we face. So it's then the tricky job for policymakers of how do you allocate resources in a different way? And of course, it often ends up that they don't allocate resources that I would want to see, but I think that's that's the nature of living in a democracy.
1: I think another thing that we deal with at least in the US is sort of this overall distrust of science and experts. I wonder how you navigate that? How you go in with all this information, all of this data and handle the fact that, you know, there are just some people who won't trust it even if, you know, it's there's evidence for it.
2: I mean, I think uh, probably in the US, I think the distrust is probably much higher uh, than in yeah. the UK. I mean, it's maybe like a little bit of an outlier. But yeah, I think in general, there is like often a, a distrust. But I think that's partly why I have this quite strict line about policy prescription, because I think in order for us to try to maintain trust as scientists, you have to very much stick to the science and stick to honest descriptions of the science. And I think once you get really heavily into the space of prescribing policies, I think then people in the public will become suspicious of why are you pushing that? Is there all other incentives behind this? And I think that there therein is then the potential
1: for people to start to lose trust. I get that this is kind of the purpose of the book because there are people who are just really turned off by the catastrophic way that we often talk about climate change. Do you think changing that approach will have an impact on those people or they're just going to be a subset of people who are always apathetic when it comes to sustainability? I think the messaging
2: and tailoring messaging to different audiences is really, really crucial. I think some people do actually just respond to the the fear, the catastrophic messages, and that's what ignites them, and that's what gets them involved in climate action. And that's fine um, if that works. But I think there's also like a big group of people that don't like that or are a bit sceptical of that. And to some extent I'm trying to bridge that ground a little bit and get people that might be on the fence or a bit disengaged to to engage a bit more when they're put off by that messaging. So I think there is like a big group there that would get more involved if they could relate a bit more to the messaging. I think there is another group that just will always just be skeptical of climate change and will not really support climate action. But I think as I said, I discussed in the the New York Times piece. I think there is still a way to engage people on solutions, even if they're not there for climate change or climate action. Now, if you look at surveys across the US, for example, there is very strong bipartisan support for climate action. Right On the left, most people are really pro-climate action, and on the right, there's tend to be much more sceptical. But everyone loves clean energy. Even on the right, there's a large majority support for clean energy. So people will often back clean energy if the economics works, if they can see benefits to the community, if they see employment opportunities. There are ways to engage people beyond just the climate message, which to some extent makes me a little bit more optimistic, because I think if we were waiting for just everyone in the world to get so passionate about climate change, then I think we would really fail on this. But I think there are ways to engage people, whether they care about climate change or not, that would drive action.
1: It feels so difficult, though, because at least, you know, here in the U.S., everything becomes political. Like, everything becomes a political fight. Like, gas stoves become a partisan issue. I'm wondering, how do you separate those things? How do you parse those out for an audience that is so inherently partisan?
2: I think often they won't necessarily be reading the same pieces. Uh, So I think to some extent you can tailor it depending on what outlet you're writing on or who you're speaking to or what podcast you're on. You can kind of often understand a little bit of the demographic and tailor the message that way. I think I am often get asked why I'm not more political or people get angry that I'm not more political on this, but it's quite deliberate. I think there are lots of People working on climate change that are very strongly political, and they do an amazing job of that. But to some extent, I'm not going to be that effective by just joining that, right? I think there is also a big space for trying to bridge the gap a bit by trying to be as apolitical as possible.
1: There's been a lot of talk about what individuals can do to curb climate change. After the break, the paper straw debate.
0: Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The Endless Shrimp Fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So, can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience, too? Actually, yes, and we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts.
1: I also want to get into something you spend time in the book discussing, and that's what you consider ineffective policies, like plastic straws, for instance. Mm. I live in D.C. where restaurants do not use plastic straws. It's a lot of paper. It's a lot of very wet straws. (laughs) I'm curious why you think it's ineffective and also why there's so much focus on these policies that aren't maybe the most effective. I think there's
2: two reasons to counter some of the ineffective stuff. I think one is that some of the stuff that people think makes a positive difference actually makes a negative difference. And I think we should just call that out so we're not doing negative stuff. But I think the other dimension to this is that I think people often become so overwhelmed with the number of decisions they should be making about Environmental stuff, and some people—I mean—they go through their day like questioning every little decision about is this good for the planet, is this bad for the planet—and I think for many people that can become overwhelming. Like they're just spending their whole day trying to optimize, but actually, there's probably like five big decisions that make a big impact on your carbon footprint, and then the rest of decisions really make very little difference at all. And you can do those if you want, but I think there's also this effect, which is called moral licensing, where if you have done a behaviour that they think has made a positive difference, often you kind of let other things fall by the wayside. So you might think, oh, I used a paper straw at dinner, therefore... It doesn't matter that I take the car or I take the flight or I eat the meat because I've done my bit because I used a paper straw. Now, the, the paper straw, the impact of the paper straw is so incredibly small compared to the other decisions. So I think mean, it's also about this moral licensing effect where people think that because they've made a small decision, it justifies them making then making a big decision.
1: What are some of those things that we think have a positive impact but actually are not helpful at all or actually kind of damaging? I think one that comes up
2: a lot is like local food, where I think if you ask people, like, what's the best way to reduce the carbon footprint of your diet, they'll often say, like, eat local. And I guess the rationale for that makes sense. Like, transporting stuff obviously emits CO2 emissions because on a truck or on a plane or come by boat. But I think the key thing when you break down the data on emissions from food is that what you're eating matters much, much more. Than how far it's travelled to reach you. So if you look at the carbon footprint of different foods um, across the world, you know the average percentage that the transport part makes up, so the food mile part makes up is just five percent. So most of the impacts of your food are coming from like land use change, or they're coming from emissions on the farm. So what you eat matters much much more than where it's came from. So you often hear people say, you know, my local beef is obviously much lower carbon than your avocados shipped in from from a given country. And actually that's just not true. Mm. What you're eating, so the beef versus the avocados, matters much, much more than whether it's local or whether that's imported.
1: What are some of the things we could be doing that are actually helpful? Like you mentioned, eating locally will not always reduce that footprint, but what are some things that people can do that will actually have an impact? I mean, I think it's important on the local stuff is that there are other reasons why
2: someone would want to eat local and that's perfectly fine. It's just that it's not necessarily the best way to reduce your carbon footprint. So if there's other reasons to eat local, like supporting your local community, or then then go ahead and do that. Stuff that's really effective and will make up the most of your carbon footprint is like on what you eat, it's primarily about meat and dairy consumption. That's probably the biggest part of your footprint there. And then food waste. Those are like the two massive ones on food. On energy, it's largely about travel. So like driving a car, obviously walking, cycling, public transport is best. If you have a car, if you need a car, then an electric car is definitely better than a petrol car. Flights are obviously a big thing for people who fly. And then in your home, it's not necessarily stuff like, your lights or, like, plug in your phone charger in. It's, like, often heating and cooking. So mm-hmm. what's really effective is is a, an electric heat pump. That tends to be much, much better than a, a boiler. And one additional thing that, if you can, like, obviously putting a solar panel on your roof just massively reduces your energy footprint.
1: It's very easy to spiral when you think about the state that the world is in. And I'm wondering how you keep from spiraling. How do you, like, clearly you are overall pretty optimistic about our ability to change things. And, like, you know, saying, like, don't panic. It will be okay. There are just things we have to do. How do you stay that clear-headed about it? Because it's very easy to start panicking. It's understandable why the doom and gloom messaging takes over.
2: I mean, I'm I'm definitely not saying that things are going to be okay. Like it depends on it depends on what we do. There will just be impacts regardless of what we do. Like climate change. I mean, I was going to say climate change is coming, but climate change is here. And with increase every increase in temperature, we increase impacts and we increase risks. So it's not that we're going to have no impacts and and things are all going to be fine. But the gradient of how fine or or okay things will be will depend on our actions. And I think we have this opportunity here to really take strong action i think the balance there is really important i think you do need like not necessarily panic because i don't know if that's a like an effective response but you do need concern and you need a sense of urgency like these are big problems that we need to solve but i think for me it's also important to focus also on the solutions and stuff that's happening i think if you just tell people this is a massive problem and just leave them with it like what are they supposed to do with that Mm. you need to also highlight the solutions and i think it's also important to highlight Solutions that are being implemented, so you can actually see stuff happening, then I think it can, to some extent, get you a little bit out of the spiral and help to build momentum. I often try to highlight like signs of progress, and it's not necessarily to you know to like congratulate ourselves and and cheer about how well we've done, but it's all, often about building momentum and showing people like this stuff can change, and there is room to to drive much more of it.
1: Yeah, I guess like. It's this idea of celebrating small wins so that people don't feel despondent and, like, there's no point.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think you can relate it to, like, even really small personal stuff in your own life. Like, say... Say you're uh, training for a marathon and you've like never been a runner, but you want to do a marathon. Like The most demotivating thing ever is if you've been training for three months and you've made no progress. Mm. Then you just stop because you think, well, I've been doing this for three months. Like Clearly nothing is managing to help. Um, I'm wasting my time. I'm just going to stop. But actually what's really motivating is if you say you've been training for three months and okay, you're not at the marathon level standard. Um, And that's where we're on climate change. We're like, we're not anywhere near where we need to be on climate change. But we have, you have got fitter over that period of time and you can now run a 10k. It's about building on that momentum to say, okay, if I can build up to 10k, then with more training and with much more effort, then I can get to the marathon distance. So I think it's about using momentum to drive more progress rather than just clapping and saying that's fine with where we are. Yeah.
1: I think for a lot of people that care about the environment, these, you know, small actions matter. Like it offers I think in addition to actually helping, it offers a sense of control in a world where so much feels out of our control. And, you know, these are small steps that we can take without the backing of companies or federal governments. And I think it really is a way not to feel despondent and powerless. What advice Do you have for people who, you know, want to make a change, want to see those changes, but aren't in power or don't have proximity to power?
2: I think we often envision this as being a very top down. So like we need to wait for the governments to tell us what to do or we need to wait for, you know, a, a big international body to tell us what to do. When I think many of the successes on this have come from like more community efforts. So probably a lot of the the benefits in building wind power in Texas, for example, have come from small communities saying we're going to build a wind farm for our community. So often I think it can start to come from grassroots and, and build up. I think the key there one is to make the changes yourself. And then a big thing is like showing them or talking about them. And that's not necessarily of saying you're a terrible person because you haven't done what I've done. I think there's a lot of that in environmentalism where it's often like a blame and pointing mm. fingers. And I think that's really ineffective at getting people to change. But I think changing yourself can often be really infectious and people get interested of, oh, so actually highlighting some of the positives Around these behavior changes can often have a kind of infectious impact. Like one house gets a solar panel and the neighbors across the street are interested, so they get a solar panel. So you can see how this can start to build up from a community level. And actually, taking that action often makes you not going to relieve all of the anxiety around climate change, but it can relieve it a bit because you feel like stuff is happening.
1: As we're having this conversation, it feels like there's an elephant in the room, and the elephant in the room is capitalism. And, you know, in many cases, The economics don't always make sense at scale, at this large scale. I wonder what your thoughts on that are. Is it possible to make these necessary changes within the system we have now? Like, Can we do that from bottom-up approach with the way things work in a lot of wealthy countries right now?
2: So I think there's often this question of do we need economic growth? And I think it's very clear, especially in low-income countries and at the global level, we do, because we've still got billions of people living in poverty and their way out of poverty is economic growth. Now, there's a question of rich countries and what they should do. I mean, I'm not of the belief system that, you know, GDP should be our North Star and that's what we should be optimising for. But I think the question there of, trying to dismantle capitalism or or move away from economic growth, I think there the, the challenge is, is getting public support for that. And I, I think there's important, really important when we're talking about timescales. To even get a leader to stand up and try to promote that and then to get, you know, public support to get them into to office. I think you'd probably be talking about taking a pretty long time to get there. And often the time scales that we're talking about to take climate action are much, much shorter. Mm. So to me, there's a kind of an incompatibility of time there of whether you would be able to do so. But I don't think we necessarily need to accept just the status quo of the system. I think there are ways to to improve things a bit within the system, which lean more in favour of us taking action. Like, there are ways to subsidise low-carbon technologies to change the the economics of fossil fuels versus low-carbon energy sources. So I don't think we should just accept the status quo, but I'm also quite sceptical that you would be able to, you know, dismantle and rebuild a whole economic system in time to tackle climate change.
1: What are some of the ways journalists could be navigating not only the data differently, but the narrative around climate change differently?
2: I think most of the coverage of climate change so far has just been on impact. So it's just about disasters. And it's not that those don't matter or that those stories aren't important. Of course they're important and the showing the, the large impacts and reporting on the large impacts that we could see is really important for driving us to act. But what I think would actually drive more action is to also balance that with more focus on solutions. So rather than just people just feeling like we're kind of headed for doom and and there's nothing we can do about it, to highlight the urgency of why we need to act, but also highlight stuff that we can do and highlight the stories of stuff that's actually going on. I think many people are just not aware of a lot of stuff that's going on behind the scenes because it's not making the headlines.
1: What do you think the role of optimism is in our climate future?
2: I think it needs to be balanced with the sense of urgency and the need to act. So, like, it's not useful to just be kind of, yeah, yeah, things will be fine. That doesn't help us at all. But I think a lot of people are feeling quite paralysed at the moment. I think they are, in some sense, disengaging because... They feel like we're making no progress and we probably won't make any progress. And this is such a critical time. Like we need to really get moving on this stuff. So this is like the worst time for people to disengage and look away. So for me, the the role of optimism there is to drive people to actually take actions and, and, and drive more of it. There are ways that we can actually have a much bigger impact by speaking to people, by getting involved politically, by changing your career into a path that, that helps to contribute to solutions. Yeah, your carbon footprint is important, but I think we can think much bigger than that and think about how can I contribute on a bigger level that influences more people, that drives, that might drive political change, might drive economic change or drive solutions.
1: Hannah Ritchie, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you. That's all for us today. We want to hear from you, your thoughts on the show, topics you'd like to hear more about. Send us an email to weeds at vox.com. Thank you to Hannah Ritchie for joining me, our producer, Sophie Lalonde, Chris Nayala engineered this episode, Melissa Hirsch fact-checked it, our editorial director is A.M. Hall, and I'm your host, John Cullen Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com/give.
0: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot.